You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with John Calhoun, who is using Golang to power a video course platform that he built to manage his courses. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. How are you? I'm doing good. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Sure. Um, so I'm John Calhoun. Uh, I started learning Go maybe, I don't know, at this point, it's probably like eight years ago. And in the process, I kind of just started writing down notes about things I was learning and, and trying to share some of that knowledge as I was you know, learning the language. And over time, that sort of evolved into a blog where I was writing about Go, and then that slowly evolved into courses where I was teaching Go in different formats, so either written formats or videos. And as that sort of you know, kept growing and getting bigger, I found that I needed more features and that sort of stuff, so I started hosting all of this on my own website and you know, putting all the videos there, having limited access to Git repos, um, having like a private Slack and just different things like that that I needed to offer to students, but I didn't want to just offer to everybody in the world because that would have been a little bit overwhelming. Right. So did you go with your hand-rolled platform from day one then to host these courses? Uh, no. So the first time I had a course, the first version was just, I, I was selling it with Gumroad and I was basically just giving files from Gumroad. And then I started to run into all sorts of issues there. Uh, like not major issues, I guess the biggest thing was that the course was in early access at that point. So when people bought it, they would get access to those files, but it was really hard to relay like when new videos were released and they would almost have to go download the zip every couple weeks or something just to sort of see if there was new stuff there. And some people just didn't realize that there was new content there ever. So I'd get an email from them like a month later, like, are you ever going to release anything? And I'm like, I already released 10 new videos like, why didn't you download it? Um, and even when I sent out emails with them, it just didn't seem to be getting to everybody. Basically decided that it was going to be easier if I had some sort of platform that they were logging into and they could just see the videos. That way, if they came to view a video and saw new ones, they would very quickly know that there was new content. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Isn't it cool, though, when you're someone who creates, you know, video tutorials or blog posts? I love the idea that, you know, you get to learn something because you enjoy learning and then turn that into something that, uh, you know, you can have other folks get to use as a learning tool. Like they get to basically learn from your mistakes and, and all that fun stuff, figuring out things from ground zero. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, like just recently I was, I, I'm switching my mailing list from Drip over to ConvertKit and I was writing an API library for ConvertKit. And it's crazy how just in the process of writing an API library, I managed to come up with like three different blog post ideas that all teach something different, all stemming from just working on one little project. And, you know, now that I've been doing this for so long, it's really hard not to work on something and immediately like almost get distracted with like, what else can I teach people from this? Yeah, that's very much how I operate too. Like I'm never sitting down thinking about what to write about. It's the other way around. It's like I'm doing something and then it's like, oh, duh, of course I can write about that. Yeah, it's. I think early on when you start to write, it's hard to figure out what to write about. And like you said, after you start doing it for so long, if you just work on problems, you come up with things that you want to write about or share with other people. And I also think that's, it's one of the challenges with making courses full-time is that you need to make sure you're working on actual projects because if you're just trying to, you know, 
come up with content without actually working on projects. I think you solve problems that don't exist or teach solutions to problems that aren't really there. So that's always been a struggle for me too. So it, that was one of the big motivations for building my own backend was that I wanted to have a couple projects in the works that actually, you know, required some development on my, my side so that as I developed them, I would come up with ideas and, and know what to teach people. Right. So just in the process of building your own platform, now you have like legit learning things you can go about because these are real like actual things you had to solve. Yeah. I mean, like the obvious example is like I'm using Gumroad right now for payments, but at some point I want to throw Stripe and some others in there. And in the process of doing that, I can very easily teach people, all right, you want to integrate with Stripe and your Go app, um, you know, here's how you do it. And, you know, maybe it won't be the same way for everybody, but it'll at least give them some advice and some ideas on how to go about solving that problem. Right. That totally makes sense. Now, going back to the platform itself, do you know roughly like when you started to build this? Uh, it was 2016. Um, I had actually checked before we started talking because I was kind of curious. Uh, that's when I started building the platform. I don't know when I actually started pre-orders. It was probably maybe at the beginning of 2016. And then like towards the end of 2016 was whenever I decided I needed my own platform. Okay. So for reference right now, it's about mid 2020. So a little bit over four years, it's been up and running. Yeah. Do you know roughly like, you don't need to give exact traffic figures, but like what's your typical like week's worth of traffic or any other metric that makes sense? Um, the only one I actually pay attention to is users, uh, like basically active accounts. And there's about 15,000 active accounts right now. Um, historically, I've had, I think a ballpark number is 50,000 accounts, but some of my courses are free courses and, you know, it's, it's a course. So they might come take the course, finish the whole thing and then be done. And I've never really done anything to block temporary email addresses from signing up. But I will occasionally go back and start pruning things like that out or take accounts that only have free courses and then have it logged in in some set period of time and I'll delete them. So I think it was something around 50,000 total signups, but you know, I've, I've since pruned it down. So it's about 15,000 act, 15, active. I'm not sure how many total there are right now, but I, you know, it kind of depends on when I prune out old accounts. Right. So pretty healthy amount for sure. Now, it's kind of interesting that you brought out uh, that pruning feature. Is that built into the platform now that's automatic, where it's like if user is free and has not logged in for, I don't know, six weeks or whatever, then you email them? Um, No, uh, it was actually a byproduct of me building different versions of the app, trying to establish what made the most sense. Um, so when I started, the very first version of the courses platform was only for the paid courses. And then for the free ones, I wanted to get a better sense of what features I needed. And I didn't want to get that all baked into my, like the paid courses was a stable platform. I didn't want to break anything there because people were paying for it. But on the free one, I'm like, okay, I can try new things here. And if it breaks, it's free. So people can't get too upset, you know, because they're not paying for it. So I built a second platform for that one. And it was, it was very different in a couple of different ways. Um, the first thing was that it didn't really have user accounts. Um, when you signed up, it would generate a login token for you and just email it to you with whatever email address you had. And if you ever sign, like if you ever lost it, you would just sign up again and it would send you the same token. Um, but I did that so that I could keep track of who was signing up. Like I, I still had an email address. I just didn't have like a password, that sort of authentication strategy. Um, so I could still keep track of who was signing up and I could keep users, uh, but it allowed me to skip the whole writing password hashing and, and all of that stuff and not having to worry about it. And then I did a couple other things with that one. Like I wanted to try Bolt DB, which is a, a key value store that runs off a single file on your disk. And one of the reasons I wanted to try that was because 
it's written entirely in Go, so you don't have to install anything on the server. You just uh, build your binary in Go, and then it is sort of just baked into your app at that point. So I, I wanted to try that, so I was using that. And then I was doing a couple other things. Um, what was it? My images were all embedded into the binary. I was using another library that basically took all of your assets and could bundle them into the binary. Um, and there were some downsides of that, like your memory usage for your app was significantly higher because everything's in memory. Um, but the upside to all of this was that it made deploys really, really easy. All I did was build the binary for the target system. So like on my Mac laptop, I could build for a Linux operating system and then upload a single binary file and tell the server to restart using that binary. And that was the whole deploy process. So I was basically trying that sort of stuff out just to sort of see how it worked. But I was also trying out some other aspects of um, you know, how I hosted courses, how I hosted demos, because that course had like 20 different exercises and a couple of them had demos. And I wanted to see like how that worked out for, you know, hosting them on the same thing and like how I wanted to sort of uh, mix that in with the rest of the application, I guess is how I'd put it. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting setup. It's almost like, yeah, you had to develop a totally separate app just to not disrupt your original paying customers. I like that approach to some extent because I, I struggle with the same thing. It's like, I think I made a mistake of not creating my own platform in the beginning. So I used a third party one. And now it's like I have this audience and I'm like a little bit afraid to just flip that switch to my homegrown solution that's not ready yet because it needs to kind of be really, really, really good because there's so many you know people who are used to it working before. Yeah. And that was like my thing was I, I wanted the free course to be over there. I was like, I can experiment more with this. And then eventually I migrated everything back to a single application, like the single courses site that I have. And in the process of doing that, I had to get people to migrate their accounts over. But I knew a ton of those people weren't actually using them anymore because they had signed up with temporary email addresses. They had logged in and, you know, done all this stuff. So that's where most of the pruning happened. You know, just I sent out emails to all those people basically saying, if you want to convert over, here's how you do it. And then when they try to log in with the old links, it would pop up a page that basically said, you need to now create an account on this new site if you want to access this course further. Um... And, you know, you didn't have to pay or anything. It was still a free course, but you had to set a password and that sort of thing. And I think some people liked it because they didn't like having to look through their email for a link to log in. Other people didn't like the idea that they couldn't just throw a temporary email in there and, and get a link and be done. They had to actually create an account and remember what email they'd used for it. But it did help me clean up all those old accounts that weren't being used anymore. And I'll still occasionally go back and look for things like that to get rid of. But it's it's more of a manual process. I don't have anything automated built in. Um you know, there's a couple stats that are, you know, like I have some some data in my database that I can look at to determine that, but it's not something that I really worry about doing frequently. Okay. So just to be clear now, the one site that we're talking about today powers everything related to your courses, both free and paid right now. Yes. Okay. Now, this is kind of a silly question. I like to ask folks like, you know, what motivated you to use something like Golang? But I mean, you know, you've been working with it for eight years. It's like all of your tutorial content is around that. Like, did you build a platform with Golang because you wanted to create learning material or are you very happy just using the language in general? So I'm happy using the language. Um, I built it because I was teaching in Go and I wanted to, it, it felt not genuine to not, you know, to build it in a different language. Um, I could have easily built it in Rails or something like that. I think it would have been a mistake now because I haven't touched Rails in so long that it would be hard to maintain. But at the time when I was first building it, I could have used Rails then because I was so familiar with Rails. I, I think long-term, it, it ended up panning out in that sense. But short-term, it was kind of just a, because I'm teaching Go, I should probably build this in Go and it'll 
help me write material and, and you know come up with content to teach people with. Right. So you mentioned, you know, you've been developing it for over four years now. Is this something that you just dedicate certain months to working on, like over the year, or do you just kind of like hack on it when you want? It's usually hacking on it when I want or when a problem bugs me enough that I need to come up with a solution. I, one example of that might be when customers would ask for a refund, like they, they'd try the course, they'd decide it wasn't for them, and they'd ask for a refund. The original process for that was to um, go to Gumroad to issue a refund there to disable their key, and then I would have to go into the actual database and I would have to delete a row because I had no admin stuff for that. And after doing it enough times, I'm like, I should probably come up with something better than this. And, you know, it was just getting annoying to do. So, you know, that would lead to some motivation to try to, to solve those problems. So a lot of it really just came down to if something was bugging me or if enough students were like, hey, we'd really love to see this feature. It's getting annoying. An example of that was I used to have all the courses where like there's one page that listed all the videos and you would click on a video and go into it and see the whole lesson there. But there was no link to go to the next lesson. And after enough people basically said, hey, I'd love to have just a link to go to the next lesson. I was like, yeah, I should probably implement that. So I went back and spent some time setting that up. Right. So like a left and right arrow, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Okay. So you mentioned uh, just before about like a license key. Is that something specific to Gumroad? Like what controls access to the course? Um, yeah. So Gumroad has a feature built in because it's usually people selling books or courses or something uh, that they can generate license keys for you. So the way mine works right now is a user goes to a landing page for a different one of the courses. Um, and if it's a paid course, the Gumroad thing will pop up. They'll pay for the course, and this is all done using like a JavaScript widget that Gumroad has, which is kind of like Stripe Checkout. So it's a little JavaScript widget. They pay for the course, and then Gumroad will redirect them to my application with the license key filled in in the URL, and I'll just parse that from the URL query parameters and fill in the form for them. So I think I get their name, their email address, and their license key from that. And then there's also webhooks coming from Gumroad. So on my end, on my app, I can actually get a webhook when somebody makes a purchase. I can do things like send them an email, um, and I can go ahead and take that license key and slip it into my database as, like, this is a valid key, so I don't have to check for it whenever they sign up. Uh, so it's basically just a process like that. Oh, okay. So when they redirect you to the page where the license key is in the URL, I mean, this is a silly question, but is there a way for you to verify that that's a legit key and it's not just them typing in some, like, random characters? Yeah, so Gumroad sends me a webhook, and that has like some, you know, there's some authentication stuff built into that. And when they send me the webhook, I can stick the license key into my database so I know it's there. But if they happen to somehow get redirected to my page before the webhook gets to my server, um, it's also set up that if it's not in the database as a valid key, I will go to Gumroad and I will basically check via their API is this, a, you know, what's the purchase for this key? And if I can't find one, it's not a valid key. Right. Did you ever run into a scenario where someone tried to game the system with that or no? Um, I honestly don't know. I don't think I have any logging around that. It probably just shows them a message like this doesn't work. And I was just like, whatever, that's fine. Right. So going back to your application here, do you have this set up as like one monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple of different services or somewhere in between? It's one mono, uh, just one big app. I'm, I'm very much against microservices, not... Not like at a fundamental level, but I'm against starting with them or trying to evolve into them too quickly because historically I've found that most people who try to switch to microservices do it too quickly and as a result they break things up in not the most ideal way when in reality the 
the best like microservice setups I've used are ones where they're not really microservices. They're they're a couple, maybe two or three mono repos that sort of all handle a big chunk of logic. And they might all three be separate services, you know, sort of like a microservice, but they're not really like tiny microservices. But when they got to that point, they they spent a lot of time building one big mono repo until it finally became very obvious these two things can be separated pretty easily, or this one part can be pulled out into something separate. And I like to wait for that natural, you know, like that, that really obvious light bulb to go off above your head and you'd be like, okay, this thing can be pulled out into its own thing. And if that doesn't happen, I'm fine with keeping it as a mono repo. Yeah, that's basically exactly how I think too. It's like something you grow into over time. Maybe, maybe not, but probably not from the beginning. Yeah. And I think it has to get pretty big before a lot of the benefits are actually there. Like I'm a single developer working on this. So a lot of the benefits for microservices just, you know, like having each team sort of quickly iterate on their own service doesn't apply to me because it's just me. So in my mind, I'm like, there's a lot of overhead that could be added to, you know, using microservices that I don't want to mess with either. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, this app has been in development for a number of years. Like, do you know roughly like the scope of it in terms of lines of code? Like I hate to measure things in lines of code, but like, are we dealing with, you know, a very big app or a very small app? Um, It's like, I think I want to say 15,000 lines of code. Uh, it's it's not like massive on any scale or maybe, yeah, I think it's 15,000 lines of code. I think that's right. Um, but technically that's been rewritten from scratch at least twice. Uh, you know, and I've also had like, I had that experimental thing that I threw the whole thing out once I was done with it. So it's, it's a hard way to judge it because some stuff just gets thrown out. Um, you know, and like, it's the same as, as looking at, you know, somebody's contribution to a project, you can't just look at the total number of lines of code because some person who deletes a bunch of old code is still doing valid work. Right. And it's also like, you know, back to maybe like your training material, at least it's like this for me. It's like, if I'm making a course around building some type of app, typically what you see is the, not the end result of the app, but it's like kind of the end result of the app. You know, it's like the final iteration of, of the thing, you know, there's not all the struggle that happened beforehand. Like, you know, you, you might rewrite something five times before you think like, okay, that's the way I'm going to, you know, teach it in the course or something like that. So like you, you mentioned rewriting this a couple of times, like, you know, maybe it was 25,000 lines of code before, but then since you rewrote it a couple of times now, maybe it's a little bit less. Yeah. There's definitely some parts that I've figured out ways to clean it up or even like you, t- you hear people talking about, uh, you know, drying up their code and, and figuring out what things they can abstract away into reusable components. I try not to do that too early. So I'll often write, you know, very similar logic three or four times before I'm like, okay, I'm seeing a pattern here. I can probably pull this into something separate that you know, just does that work. And, you know, it's like you said, you have the first version that's all of a sudden it's a thousand lines and you realize you can pull this into a single version that's, you know, 250 lines of code and you go and you have to write a whole new 250 lines of code and then you delete a thousand lines. And it's, it's like a slow evolving process, but it, it, I think it's the best way to do it because if you try to abstract things too early, you end up with abstractions that just generally aren't useful or they like they have a bunch of weird like, oh, but in this edge case, we do this other thing. And then all of a sudden the abstraction is not that great. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I always get into trouble when I try to you know do something twice and then quickly go for the abstraction. And then it's like, whoops, it's like the third time I use it, it's like totally busted because I didn't think about X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's a really hard problem, especially for like new developers, I think. Because you, all through college, you know, wherever you learn to program, you hear all these things about, like, don't do the same thing over and over again. And then in practice, you realize that very subtle differences can can essentially mean you have to duplicate code. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, going back to this app itself, um, I'm not really too well versed in Golang. Like I've looked at it in the past, but I've never really developed anything of substance. But I do know, like, me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, like word on the street with that language is it's very, I don't know, non-idiomatic maybe to use a lot of third-party libraries. Like, is your project mainly using the standard library or do you use like some specific web framework or how does that roll out? Yeah, so I think a large part of this stems from people being bitten in the past. So anybody who's had an application, let's say you wrote a Rails app and it's up in production and you don't touch it for two or three years and then all of a sudden you need to go fix something or something changes, it can be a nightmare trying to do that because some of these frameworks will change. And like, you know, if you go from Rails 3 to 4 to, what are they on, 6 now? Yep. So, you know, all the way up to Rails 6, switching versions of Rails takes a non-trivial amount of work to do. But when you try to look at docs or anything like that, they're almost always for the most up-to-date version. So, you know, trying to manage an old application that's on an old version or even just getting it running on your computer to develop it can be a pain. And I think people got bit by stuff like that enough in the past, or they got bit by maybe Rails has some opinion that they didn't like, and when they went to change it, it was just really hard to change. And I say Rails, it could have been literally any framework. So it could have been Django, Flask, you know, whatever. But I think a lot of people who came to go had those issues. So as a result, they kind of went the exact opposite side of it, of we're going to build everything just custom fit for our needs, and that way in the future... We know exactly what this code's doing because we wrote it. We don't have to worry about outdated docs or, you know, anything like that. And, you know, you, you, you avoid a lot of those issues of things breaking due to things out of your control, but there's a lot more work you have to do up front. I kind of fall in the middle is, is how I'd put it. I'm not opposed to using third-party libraries, but I also keep in mind that they are sometimes a stopgap. They're just temporary fixes to, until I come back and decide what makes the most sense long-term. Um, one example of that is the first version of the, when I said I made that free courses version that was using Bolt DB, I used something called Storm on top of it, which is like an ORM built on top of Bolt DB. And I was fine with that because I didn't know a lot about uh, key value databases at the time. And I was like, I'm just learning how this works. I'd rather use an ORM that has some opinions that will help me get started. And then later I can pull that out if I want to. Um, so I wasn't opposed to doing things like that at all. And I've, I've done that for different parts of my application. Another example is, um, routing. I, I definitely use a third party library for that, but I didn't go as far as using a whole framework because at least in Go, it's, it's, it's not like Django or Rails where a large e part of the ecosystem is using one framework. So you don't get those benefits of like everybody already understanding a lot of the concepts there. So I just don't see as much benefit in using something as big as a full framework. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's even more impressive now that your whole platform is maybe like roughly 15K lines of code. If it's like a mix of using standard library and a couple of packages here and there. Yeah. I mean, especially considering I'd have to go look, but a good chunk of that is probably authentication code because I have to hash my own passwords. Um, I mean, granted, there's like the bcrypt libraries and stuff like that in the Go standard library that I can use, but I still have to write a lot of code that makes sure the password gets hashed, make sure, you know, all those different things that need to happen, and even like uh, tokens to remember who a user is, I need to generate all that stuff on my own. So I had to write all that logic for that. And if you're using like, I, I say Rails, where I go there a lot because that's what I have a history with, but in Rails, there was, you know, there was a gem that did that for you. 
and you really didn't have to think too much about most of that. Right. There was the device gem, push button, receive authentication. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, I kind of, some days I miss that and other days I'm like, well, I know exactly how authentication works and I, I understand it a lot better than I used to. So that's nice. Right. Now going back to that routing library, uh, it's been so long since I played around with Go. There was one called like Gorilla or something like that. Is that the one that you use or is it something different nowadays? Uh, I think the current app is using Gorilla Mux. So Gorilla is like a, it's it's like a repo, I guess is the best way to put it on GitHub. Oh, like an organization, right? Yeah, it's like an org. And they have like a bunch of different tools that are built around building web applications. So I think they have one called Mux, which is a, a Muxer or a router. Uh, they have some others around like secure cookies. Um, what are the other ones? Uh, just different things like that for web stuff. I think one was on WebSockets. That's the other one I was thinking of. Uh, so I used that one at first because it had been around a long time. I knew it was stable. I knew tons of people were using it. And I, you know, I didn't have any concerns about it breaking, which for me was important when you're choosing a third-party library is it's you don't really want your routing library to be something that's not well-tested. <laughs> you know, you don't want that stuff to t start breaking. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I remember back then thinking about things like, well, this library only allows me to get like 187,000 requests per second, but this one is like 207,000 requests per second. But then like now I think back, like the amount of time I wasted bike shedding over things that don't matter, it's kind of crazy. Like, do you find yourself going down that route when it comes to picking Golang libraries since that language is typically, you know, sort of held up there to be, you know, you would use this if you want like a high performance system? I don't. I'm very much a pick it based on what, what you need out of the library and stability and that sort of stuff. Speed, at least at that level, isn't as important to me. Um, there was actually an issue. I forget which version of Go it was. It was like Go 1.10 maybe. But in one of those versions, they released some changes to the, uh, the, the net HTTP package. And essentially, if you just had a Hello World server, it got 20% slower. So it, went, it was something like that. So it went from like handling some crazy high, like, you know, 500,000 requests per second to, to now it handled 450,000 requests per second or something. Um, whatever the difference was, some people are getting really upset about it because they're like, you know, this Hello World servers, you know, now is a little bit slower. And everybody else was just like, it's a Hello World server. Who actually does that in production? Like just connecting to your database is going to take more time than we're talking about you're losing here. It it was one of those things where some people got upset about it and I just viewed it as this is not a real issue because in reality, web servers don't just respond with text. They they have to go do other things. They have to connect to a database. They have to authenticate a user. They have to you know maybe create entities in a database or look up stuff. So I don't get worried about those, you know, like really low level performance things. And even when it comes to like with Go, there's different ways you can worry about your very like whenever you're creating different uh, variables and that sort of stuff you can try to do things to decrease memory allocations and you will find libraries out there that actually like tout like we only use two memory allocations per request while this other library has three or four memory allocations per you know routing request or http request that they have to route for i never got worried about that because it just hasn't ever affected my application um, so I'm very much the type of person who will wait until I'm actually having a performance issue, and then I'll go try to deduce, like, what's the biggest factor here, and how can I fix that? Right. On that note, have you ever, ever gone to your application just to profile it based on potential issues that maybe folks have reported, like a, a certain endpoint being a bit slow? Um, this one, no. It's simple enough that it hasn't become an issue. 
Um, I have historically, and almost every time it ends up being like I'm running a SQL query that doesn't have an index. Right, or you get bit by like an N plus one query where you just executed 100 things by accident. Yeah, or something like that. It's it's almost always been a SQL query, though, like almost every single time. Now, going back to what you said before about, you know, things your app typically would need to do that makes like hello world benchmarks like, you know, kind of pointless, right? A single database connection is going to be a huge amount of time. But there's also things too, right? It's like just rendering a template on the server to do that interpolation takes some time as well. Is your application like server rendered templates using, I don't know if Golang has, a, I guess, like a templating standard library package, or is your app more of like an API backend with a JavaScript front end? It's currently server-side rendering for everything. Um, Go has a template library. It That's one of the areas that, that doesn't get a lot of love in the standard library um, because it's different than what most people are used to. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to explain it. If you're used to like Rails or any of those, you can kind of throw more logic in the front end, um, and it's a lot more willing to work with you in that sense. Whereas the Go version is seems fairly limited. Now you can actually add custom functions into it, and there's some ways to go about doing it, but it's it takes some getting used to. Um, but I did use the standard library, so I learned a lot about it in the process. And there are some weird gotchas. Uh, one example is if you're rendering. Um, if you're rendering your like you know your view that you want to give to the user, sometimes people, especially if you're coming from like a Rails background, you like having access to the current user pretty much anywhere within the template because maybe on the nav bar you just want to throw the current user's email address up there on a button, um, things like that. So giving them access to that globally without passing this data around to all the templates and sub-templates that you're calling can be kind of it can be a pain to pass the data around. So what some people will do is they'll try to provide just a function that has that. Um, but the issue with that is usually you parse a template once and then you use that parsed version to render all your copies. And when you parse it, you have to give it a function for the current user. So at this point, you don't actually know who the current user is because you haven't had a web request. So what you end up having to do is weird things like giving it a, an empty function that just returns nil. And then on each web request, you have to clone that template, add the new function in that has the current user, and then render based off that clone. So there's like some weird things like that that are there. Um, if you're getting into Go, like if anybody listening is starting with Go, where I would actually suggest you go is there's a, a framework called Buffalo. Well, he doesn't like calling it a framework. It's more like an ecosystem of libraries. Um, but it's written by Mark Bates, and he has this library called Plush. I think it's Plush. And it looks very similar to, um, I think, ERB files is what it looks like. So the Rails template library. And it's going to be like that, but Go. And it's 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 a very good library for, you know, generating server-side HTML and Go. Okay. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop that one into the show notes. Now, going back to what you said there about current user, does Go have the notion of, like, plugs or middleware, like a way to insert that into every request without having to really put it into, like, every handler, like, arguments? So Go's handlers are... They're basically just a function that takes in a response writer, which is how you send data back to the user, and then a request object. So it's just a function that has those two arguments. And the way you write middleware is generally a function that accepts a handler and returns a new one with a closure. So you would essentially just, uh, you, you would accept that whatever the handler you're planning on using is, you would write some logic that would say like, okay, let's look at the request, let's see if the user's there, if they are there, we'll call the handler that they passed into this function, um, you know, and, and actually proceed with the rest of the the chain of 
you know, handlers. But if they're not there, then you just return, you know, terminate early and generate like an error message or something. And as far as passing that data along goes, um, there's different viewpoints on this. Uh, one way to do it is to add it to, there's a context object attached to every request that you can stick arbitrary values in. And some people will do that. I'm, I'm one of the people that will stick a user object in there because I think that is a context specific value. Other people are very much against that. And every single handler actually has to have a couple lines at the start of it that actually says who is the current user based on this request and do they have access to this endpoint. So there's different approaches to it and there's different pros and cons to each one um, that, you know, it's, it's all pretty specific to go. That's not really worth digging into too much here. Right. But at least now, you know, these are things you've got uh, a lot of practice on implementing your own authentication solution. Yeah. And I, I've, I like using some of these approaches because historically I've run into problems where I prefer this approach, but I think other people just depending on the type of things they're building might prefer a different approach because of that, you know, their history. Right. So before we move on to things like the rest of your tech stack and deployment, uh, are there any packages that you do use in this project that really helped you build your app, like some noteworthy ones? Um, so I said that I'm using Gorilla Mux for routing. Uh, there's another one called Echo, which is very similar. Uh, I've used that in a couple of new projects and that sort of stuff. So either of those are both great ones if you're just looking at the routing side of it. If you're not super comfortable writing SQL queries, there's one called GORM, G-O-R-M, that is like an ORM that's way more lightweight than like the Rails ORM is, but it sort of helps people who are just learning Go and just trying to get into this without like deep diving into SQL. I'm trying to think of what others. That's that's probably the major ones. So the rest of the rest of the code is pretty much all homegrown stuff. Okay. And also uh, for the front end, before we move on, we didn't get a chance to talk about that. Uh, do you just use like regular CSS or do you use SAS? What about JavaScript and Webpack? Anything like that or no? So I'm using... Tailwind for all the CSS, and I'm using Post CSS to sort of handle cleaning that up and trimming it up. If you've ever used Tailwind, um, the CSS it generates is really, really big. And then you use something like Post CSS and some other tools to trim out the parts that you're not using. So it looks at all of my templates and finds the classes that I'm actually using and it gets rid of every, every other class that I'm not using so that my CSS file is not like four megs and instead it's, you know, a couple hundred kilobytes or something. Yeah, And as far as anything else on the front end goes, it's it's basically just the server-side HTML with maybe a couple tiny little JavaScript snippets here and there, but there's really not a lot of JavaScript on there right now. That, there just wasn't really a need for most of the stuff I have. Interesting. What about things like uh, the video player? Is that just like Wistia or Vimeo or something else? Uh, it's currently just embedded with Vimeo. And there are a couple videos that are embedded with YouTube, actually, because... I wanted to have a sample for the course, and I'm a big believer in having a big sample. I want people to have a real sense for what it's like. So I think the course, the one course is like, uh, I want to say 40 hours. It's it's a long one because I go into all of those mistakes I make and sort of, not, not necessarily mistakes, but like I, I rewrite code and like have people sort of follow me as I do that so they understand why it ends up in the final state. Um, but anyway, the sample was like two and a half hours of video. So all of those lessons are all hosted on YouTube. And, you know, when you request a sample, I just give you a link to that playlist. And all of those, rather than hosting it in two different places, I just embed the YouTube version. Wow. 40-hour video course. That is no joke. Like, my Flask one is 22 hours with a whole bunch of updates at the end. And I think that was very long. But 40 is like, <laughs> that's major props to get it that big. Yeah, it's it's tough because 
I had to exp like there are some things I explained that I probably didn't have to. Um, like I think there's one side video that goes into like interfaces and go and sort of explains how they work. And technically that wasn't necessarily for a web development video, but I found that a lot of my audience was coming from almost no programming background, or they were coming from somewhere where they weren't really sure how Go's interfaces worked. So over time, I found videos like that actually added a lot of, were very helpful. So I was fine with having extra stuff like that. And even like earlier, we talked about the routing aspect. I think I have three different videos that explore three different routers. One of them is using the standard library. One of them is using Gorilla Mux, and one of them is using something else. I forget what. Um, so I actually show them how all three work, and then I come back and say, this is the one I'm using, but you've seen how they all work, so if you want to write this app with the other one, you can. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting way to approach it because, you know, learning what you thought about to narrow your decision down to one of them is, like, really the good, you know, that's the good stuff, basically. Yeah, it's it's hard to see that thought process, but the thought process is usually what helps people learn. Yeah, for sure. Now, maybe we can switch gears a little bit now and talk more about the rest of your tech stack, because right now, you know, you have Golang. I, I guess, does it have its own, like, built-in web server as part of the standard library? Yeah. So one of the things I really like about Go is that its standard library for starting a web server is really, really good. It's fast, um, but on top of that, it does a lot of work for you. Like, uh, th the best example I can give is that every request that comes into your server is already running in a Go routine. So your Go server can actually handle a lot of requests simultaneously because they're already running in Go routines. So it does all that sort of stuff for you, and all you really have to worry about is you know, just responding to the server, you know, doing all your server-side logic for the most part. Now, there's still things like uh, if you're writing an API, you might have to worry about cores. Um, if you're you know, authenticating users, you still have to do all of that stuff on your own, but it handles all the like actual server stuff for you. Right, and then for the database backend, do you use Postgres or something else? Um, I'm currently using SQLite, which is really weird. Uh, I'll probably eventually move to Postgres because that's what I typically use. I I don't even remember how this sort of started. I think it was just the first version. I just wanted to throw something up really quickly because I said like I was struggling with people not finding new courses. And when I first started selling courses, it's not like I had a big audience. I, I think there was maybe 20 customers. So I'm like, all right, SQLite's fine. And I threw it up there. And since then, it's just it hasn't actually been a performance issue. So I've just been kind of putting it off until it actually becomes an issue, which I, I think some people are probably rolling over in the graves or something thinking it's crazy, but it, it works well enough for me. And even for like database snapshots, it's kind of nice because I can just take the file and copy it. And, you know, if I just take my droplet, so I'm running on DigitalOcean. So all of this is on a $5 droplet and I can just, you know, clone the whole thing and I have a backup of everything. Well, lots of good stuff to unwind here. Yeah, SQLite. Interesting to see that you're using that. Now, we didn't get a real chance to talk into like the internals of your course platform, but like how much data do you typically write to the database? Like, do you keep track of like user progress when they're watching a video? Like, does every user get like a 10 second tick or update? Or like, like how many rows are we dealing with in a database? It's really not that much. Um, I, I keep track of users. I keep track of like when they're logging in, that sort of stuff. Um, as far as videos and viewing and that sort of stuff, I don't keep too much content on that side. Uh, a lot of it is sort of stemming from Vimeo because Vimeo actually has metrics for all this and that's where most of my videos are hosted. So I can go just get overall stats from that. I'll probably eventually start adding more metadata around like what the user is actually watching or at least like what videos they finished, that sort of thing. 
I haven't focused on it too much because I don't like tracking data if I'm not going to act on it. So it just seems like a, a waste of time. And, and I've even gotten weird to the point that I don't even log into my Google Analytics account anymore because I just found that I would spend 30 minutes there looking at data that I didn't do anything with. And it just wasn't beneficial to me. Like it didn't help my business or anything. And I was better off spending that time doing something else. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that works. I mean, with something like a course platform, especially if you have paid courses, it's almost like the middleman, like Google Analytics, doesn't matter. It's like, well, did my income go down or up from last month? And like, that's your bottom line, kind of. Like the stats don't even matter, at, like beyond that. Yeah, and like the other thing I found was, like I, I was considering keeping stats on like, where do users get? Like how many videos do they get in before they stop with the course? Because that's usually a sign that, oh, people are finding this video challenging and they're getting confused and they you know, aren't learning like I want them to learn. But I actually found that because I have a Slack for all my students, it was much easier just to check there because most people would ask a question. So if I found three questions about one video, there was a chance I needed to go fix that video. But if there was no questions about a video or if people were just like, hey, I really like this video, then you know it was good. I didn't have to worry about it. Right. So speaking of Vimeo features, do you have an ability for folks to resume where they left off? Or is that just not something you do right now? Like, let's say I started watching your course and, you know, I'm done on lesson like 84. Can I just resume from like the eight minute mark from on lesson 84? Uh, right now, no. All of that is is as basic as you can get it. I've even had people complain that they want it to remember. I think Vimeo, the embedded player, for whatever reason, doesn't remember your preferences for speed, like playback speed. So if they switch it to like 1.5x, it doesn't remember that on the next video, which is frustrating because I think their embed player should remember that, but whatever. Um, so this is all stuff that I'm planning to do in the future. I just haven't done it um, because I was kind of waiting until it was a big enough issue. So I'm actually in the process of like redoing the entire courses page to use React on the front end. And then I'm going to have a much better player and some other stuff. I have a couple other features planned to sort of sync up with that. I think then I'll, I'll focus a lot on you know, fine-tuning that process. But again, a lot of it comes down to what people are asking for. And like you said, resuming at eight minutes, nobody's ever actually asked for that. The biggest thing they've asked for is, can you just remember like my playback speed? Wow, interesting. That's that's good to know. As someone who's developing their own platform now, you know, I am spending time on things like tracking progress for the sake of allowing someone to resume at the point where they're stopped instead of just resuming the video at like minute zero. Yeah, I, I mean, it's probably nice to have, but it's just one of those things that, I don't think most people get too worked up over it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, most folks probably... Like, I don't want to get too deep in the woods on this because it's so specific to core stuff, but they're probably watching a video, like a 15-minute video, and they're done. They're going to move on to the next video. They're not going to stop, like, at the six-minute mark, maybe. Maybe they pause it to go to the bathroom and come back, but that's about it. Yeah, I think it's also hard because if you come back mid-content, you don't always remember what was going on, so sometimes that's a challenge too. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to your tech stack, SQLite... Golang, do you have anything sitting in front of the Go web server like Nginx or another type of reverse proxy? So I'm currently using, it's called Caddy Server, and it's it's like Nginx. Uh, it's basically the reverse proxy in front of my stuff. So it points to static files and it can um, gzip them and do stuff like that. So you basically have like a, a path like slash public and anything that's going to that, I think it goes there, if I recall correctly. Um, there's some path, I forget what it is. And then it actually has the rest of the stuff goes to my Go app, which is just you know running on localhost on the server, and it just reverse proxies to that. And one of the reasons I picked Caddy was because it handles things like your SSL cert and all that stuff for you. And setting it up 
is exceptionally easy. Now, I say this with a caveat that I used V1. They're currently on a V2, which I think takes a little bit more time to set up, but it's still really easy. But it, it's just kind of nice because it was like a, a four or five line config file that basically said like, this is my domain. And then it uses Let's Encrypt and it does all the work of like pinging them to say it needs an SSL cert and in Let's Encrypt will basically send them back a message at that you know uh, domain to make sure that they're actually that domain. And it'll handle renewing it and all that stuff. So I don't have to worry about my SSL cert or anything because that just handles it for me. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a breath of fresh air if it's just like, you know, five, six lines of code for a config file and you're done. Like, I have nothing against Nginx. I think it's an amazing tool, but it does get a little bit wordy to configure everything, right? You're dealing with, you know, maybe five or six dozen lines of code instead. Yeah, it's, and I've used Nginx in the past. I don't have anything against it either. I just happened to be looking at Caddy Server, one, because it was written in Go and I was just interested. Um, but two, because it just handled all these problems for me and having used it as long as I have, I have nothing but positive things to say about how it performs and, and you know, everything on that front. Yeah. So going back to your maybe development environment, then I guess you're not using anything like Docker? Um, I do some, but it just kind of depends. Uh, so I said I'm working on a new version of it that uses React and all that stuff. And that one is using Docker a little bit more heavily. Uh, so I have a Docker Compose setup that basically spins up a Postgres database. It spins up the Go app. It spins up um, the uh, React application, it also spins up another pro or another container that's doing the Tailwind stuff, and it's monitoring the entire React side and rebuilds the Tailwind stuff with PostCSS when it needs to. I'm trying to think of what else is there. There's another, con I don't know if it's in a separate container, if it's the same one that's running my Go app, but there's one that runs test too. And I've actually done some weird custom setup with that, which is probably less normal, like less standard. Uh, specifically, I wanted to know if I made changes to my API that my React UI would re-render. And because the two are sort of running separately, I, I didn't have a good way to do that. And at the time, I was I considered looking at all these solutions that solved this problem for me. And finally, I just decided, okay, what's the simplest way to make this work? Um, you know, something I understand and can just make happen. And I realized that if I just change any file in the React, uh, you know, in the React list of source files that it would re-render the UI at that point. So I created a file called lastbuilt.js. And then on the Go side, anytime I made changes and it rebuilt, it would actually write a string to that file that was basically a, a constant, like it basically wrote a constant into that file that was the last time the API server was rebuilt. And then in the dev environment, my React side actually renders the last time the, the API server was rebuilt. So it'll rebuild every time that happens. And that actually led to me doing a lot more stuff with that. So I, I actually took all of my tests and my build, and whenever there's an error building or there's an error with tests, it'll actually push that to the React side and it just renders it in the React component. So as I'm developing, I basically just keep a Chrome window up. And if a server stops, you know, starts failing, I'll actually just see it right in the app. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds like a very uh, like homegrown slash clever solution to probably a pretty tricky problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's better ways to handle this stuff, but... To me, I was like, okay, I know how to write to a file. Like, that's real easy. And for what I'm doing, this works well. And it was just kind of cool to see how that all came together and just worked really easily. Yeah, very cool. So you mentioned that you are using Postgres in that Docker Compose setup. Is this new version with React going to also introduce Postgres instead of SQLite? That's the plan. Um, so there, there's a couple motivations behind all of this. Um, one of them is that I know SQLite probably won't work forever. Um, the second is that 
I want to get my application into a state where I can basically add new features and turn that into educational content for other people. Because I think, like at some point, I want to add Stripe payments. And I think other people could benefit from seeing how I integrate the Stripe payments. So I wanted to get it into a state that other people wouldn't look at and just immediately like, what the heck is this guy doing? Uh, for for a bet, you know, lack of a better way to put it. Um, and I think if they see a SQLite database, they're just going to be like, this guy isn't serious. So yeah, I, I was trying to, to move it over to Postgres and just try to get things like in a in what I guess, I guess I would consider the environment that a lot of people want to learn from. And I just think a lot of people want to use React, even if they don't necessarily need it, they want to use it. So I felt this is a good chance to just put some React in this application and, and push this other stuff there. And then I could start teaching based on new features I added. Right. Yeah. The joys of being someone who creates courses, it's kind of funny now. It's like, well, suddenly you're going to find yourself doing like a 30 hour course on React uh, just to learn something in a Go course. <laughs> It's that that's one of the things that's it's a challenge is that if you're doing a React course or like if you're doing like a, a JavaScript course with Node on the server side and React on the front end, you can kind of teach both at the same time because they're both JavaScript. But like on my end, I'm like, well, I don't want to teach React and JavaScript and teach Go and writing all the stuff on the server side. So you, you kind of have to find a good balance for that. But yeah, th this whole process of uh, changing things is actually there's one thing I didn't mention about my tech stack, which is um, DigitalOcean has this thing called volumes which is, like, if you ever used uh, S3 or anything like that, usually you have these, like, you know, like buckets that you can put data in. And for a lot of applications, that's where you'll store all your static files. And uh, DigitalOcean has this thing called volumes, which are, like, hard drives that you can mount to multiple droplets. And they can be bigger than whatever the droplet's hard drive is. So you kind of get something like that, where you can actually have multiple droplets if you need to, all using the same hard drive. At least if I recall correctly, you could mount them on multiple. I'm still running on one droplet, so I don't really know. Um, so I have volumes on there right now that allowed me to just write to the local hard drive. But if you've ever like deployed to Heroku or anything like that, you realize that you can't write to the local hard drive and expect stuff to be there. So I'm also in the process of switching over to DigitalOcean Spaces, which is the same thing as S3, uh, just DigitalOcean's version. And, you know, making some changes like that too. Yeah, it's kind of interesting about DigitalOcean Spaces, like, I'm a big fan of using DO. I use them for everything, basically. Like, they're not a sponsor of the show. I just really love their service, right? No problems with it. Except for DigitalOcean Spaces. Like, for some reason, I can't find any reasonable success stories of people using it. Because all I read is horror stories about it, about how, like, serving images are very slow. Like, it'd be curious to see how it turns out for you if you happen to use it in the end. Yeah, I mean, the upside to it being on an S3, like, it's basically the entire interface is the same as S3. So I'm actually using the S3 like Go library, and I just changed the URLs that it's connecting to. The upside to doing it, and like why I consider it low risk, is that if it ends up being terrible, I can just port everything over and to S3 and just you know change the config, and then I should be good to go. Um, so it's not like the end of the world if it ends up not working. Right. So going back to Do in itself, did you kind of compare that to different providers, or did you just use them forever and you went with that? I've been using them for a while, which is a big part of it. I used um, AWS stuff in the past, and I just felt like all the authentication and all the other stuff they have going on is great for a big organization, but for a single developer just trying to get something out, it was just a nightmare to try to figure it all out, and I just didn't want to mess with it. Whereas like DigitalOcean was a, a breath of fresh air where you just log in and you give it an SSH key and you can connect to your servers and everything's good. So I've just kind of stuck with that. And I also like the fact that I can pay $5 a month knowing that like that's what I'm paying for the server. 
I don't really like the idea of running someplace where you don't really know your cap. Um, I think that's one of the issues people have with uh, Google's, you know, all their cloud offerings and, and AWS's cloud offerings is that a lot of them don't really have a good cap like system in place. And if you're using something where like ingress and egress and all these things can and cause you to you have extra charges, you don't always know that your things are spiking or something's going on until your bill is pretty high. Yeah, I've heard too many horror stories with AWS where someone is like, well, you know, I was paying 18 bucks a month, but then this month was like 1400 and there was nothing they can really do about it. Yeah, I mean, I've even heard horror stories where, I forget what it was, I don't know if somebody managed to get like a, a mining thing in there or what, but some, basically their bills are all spiking and people are like, we didn't realize it until it's like a $10,000 bill, which, you know, for a lot of people, you can't really afford that. Yeah, definitely. So do you think, uh, going back to Dio here, if you do... Uh, set things up to use Postgres. Will you use their managed Postgres database, or will you just put that on that five dollar a month box? Um, I haven't decided. I've I'll probably lean towards something managed because I I feel like for the cost, it's usually not worth the pain or the headache of trying to figure out what's going on. Um, like I get that when you're building applications and you're getting started, it's really hard to take a bunch of like five dollar a month, ten dollar a month, whatever these services are. They all add up over time, especially if you're starting a new business, um, all of a sudden $100 a month can can feel like a lot. But I'm at a point right now with courses and everything that I'm living off the income, and I'm okay with having something that I'm paying for that I don't have to think about or worry about. Because while saving that $10 a month or what, I don't even know what the cost is, but saving whatever that amount is can be useful. I, I think the the one time something goes wrong and you spend an entire evening stressed out is just not worth it. Yeah, and especially with the course stuff. Imagine, you know, spending three or four months creating a course, you know, about to just send it to your email list. And for whatever reason, like something goes astray that uh, is related to your infrastructure and you lose like, you know, hundreds or dozens of sales from that because of, uh, you know, not using like a managed database. Yeah, and I think I've gotten away with what I have now because, so like I should have probably mentioned this when I said I'm using SQLite. Um Part of the reason I don't get too concerned about it is because all my sales currently funnel through Gumroad, I have a backup copy of every single sale I've ever made there. So even if my entire database got wiped at some point, anybody with a free account could just sign up again. Like, there's not really any harm in having them do that. It's not ideal, but they could do it. And any paid version, you know, any course they purchased, I could then write a script that goes through the entire Gumroad data, you know, API, pulls all my purchases, and repopulates the database. Yeah. So... For the major things, I don't have to worry too much about it because, you know, there is another source of truth. Right. Yeah. I think even if you ended up using Stripe and PayPal, like manually, you'd have that same flexibility. But man, just thinking about like how much of a nightmare that would be to like reverse the records out of there. Those ones would be harder. Um, like Gumroad is nice because like even the API, like I'm using their, not their API keys, their, uh, their licenses that they generate. So like it would literally just be going through for every purchase and I already have to look at the license and whenever there's a purchase, there's like a unique product ID and I've already got those mapped in my application as well. So it's literally just pulling those two things, deciding which permissions they should have and then, you know, setting that on their account. Yeah. So going back to that one server that you have five bucks a month that has one gig of RAM, one CPU core, uh, which distro of Linux did you choose for that one? Ubuntu. Uh, I think it was... I want to say 14 is the version, or is that maybe it was 12? It was it was a you know one of the LTS ones, um, and it was just 
Ubuntu is what I'm familiar with, so I figured stick with what you know. Right. Do you think if you were to upgrade to the Postgres setup, do you think you'll refresh your web server to be uh, a newer version of Ubuntu? Like, I guess 2004 is the latest one at the time of making this uh, podcast? Um, haven't really given it any thought, to be honest. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, basically, right? That's that's mostly my mindset. Um, Even like like my Go version on the server, I'm not 100% sure which Go version I'm using because unless I'm doing... Like even when I'm doing rebuilds, unless I need something in a new Go version, I don't actually like I don't have to switch the Go version. Go is kind of nice in the sense that their backwards compatibility promise essentially guarantees that any future releases of Go aren't going to break anything. And a lot of people who write libraries are very serious about keeping them backwards compatible as well, like more so than I think any other language I've used. So it's kind of nice not having to get too worked up over it. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. Maybe we shouldn't go down in this podcast, but that is an interesting decision, right? Where the trade-off there is like as a library maintainer, you probably have a lot more code that you need to take care of instead of just like moving forward and dropping support. Yeah, I mean, they do do major bumps at some point, and but like they are much clear, you know, it's like a very clear like you need to switch to this major version. So it's it's kind of nice to like have that change where like, I don't know, I feel like in other languages, it just, there were very much times where things updated and I just felt like everything broke. Yeah, I mean, it's very frustrating when you don't touch a code base for like three or four months and you're like, you know what, time to update some packages. And then it's like, oh, you know, this is not like a 10 minute update. This is like, uh oh, like a three day update. Yeah. Or worse. So going back to that one server, uh, did you set this up manually, like you SSH'd in and started to run some commands or do you use some type of configuration management tool like Ansible? Um, everything's set up manually. I, I'm i using systemd to make sure things are still running. Um and I think, didn't the latest version of Ubuntu drop that? Uh, not the 2004 LTS. I'm not sure beyond that. I don't really keep track of non-LTS releases. Okay. I swear somebody said that it was dropped at one point. And if that was the case, I'd probably be skeptical of switching to that until I knew exactly how I was going to change it. Um, but yeah, I'm just, it's just basically running in the background and it makes sure like the couple services I have are you know always up and running. And you know setting it up was essentially just going into the server and setting that all up. Uh, as far as like deploys and that sort of stuff go, I've I, I've very much been the type of person who just likes to write like a script or a release.sh bash file that SSHs into the server and or you know does whatever it needs to for the release. And I, I think I kind of like that because it's what I'd essentially do manually and I understand it and I realize that it doesn't scale that well and it doesn't work for all sorts of things. But when it's just me working on it, I'd rather stick with something I know and that I can debug easily than something that could potentially cause me issues. Yeah, I think that's uh, a really important point, right? Like, it's just me. Like, you can get by doing so many things. Like, maybe it's like the non-enterprise way of doing it, but it totally works 100% fine. Like, do you just have that release script sitting in, in like, the code repo somewhere? Yeah, I, I keep it in the, you know, just in the repo. And I've, I've even gone as far as, as making builds. Like, whenever I said that I would build for Linux before um, on my Mac computer... Even scripts to do that sort of thing were all just kept in the source code repo as something to do there. Very cool. So now maybe we can go into like what your deploy process looks like. Like if you don't mind unwinding that release script a bit, like what does it look like for you to develop a feature and then ultimately that ends up on that DO box? Yeah. So whenever I'm working on it, um, I I use uh, Git. I think pretty much everybody is at this point. Um, whenever I do branches, I, I try to do like an entire feature in a branch or like an entire finished thing. Um, I think I learned this using Fabricator, which is like a a GitHub alternative, but it's a little bit different. Um, 
But basically, I like the idea of having a single commit that has an entire change in it. Um, that way, if you need to roll back the entire change, it's just one commit you just roll back, and it's easier for people to sort of understand why all these changes were made. So I'll make a new branch. Um, I can have multiple commits there, that's fine, but then whenever I merge the branch into master, I will do a squash and basically rewrite the commit message to explain exactly what I was doing. So after that, I'll push it to, um, you know, I'll push it up to GitHub and have a copy there. Uh, I think it's, it's either on GitHub or GitLab. I think this one's on GitLab right now because private repos are a little bit different whenever I started it. Um, so I'll push it up there, and from there, I don't actually do any automated deploys. Uh, I could but it just wasn't really necessary because again, it's just me and I know if I need a release, I can just do it. Um, so I'll actually just run the release script from my local computer and the release script is relatively simple. It SSHs into the server, it uploads all the static assets, it, uh, you know, it, it tells the server that that's the new static assets folder. Um, it will, I think the current version uploads all of my Go stuff and actually builds on the server but I've done it both ways where I've, I've built locally and then pushed it up or I've, I've built on the server. Um, the current one is building on the server. I'm looking at it now. Um, and then once I've built it on the server, I will basically just tell the, uh, the service to stop and restart. And that's my deploy process. So it's not like a zero downtime deploy or anything like that. It, it actually stops the server for a second. So that build process, do you know roughly how long it takes? It's like a second. Like not just the restart process, but like building the new binary, I guess, on the server. Whoa. Yeah, that's, you know, that's very surprising for someone like me where, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, Python or Ruby or lots of other languages, right? Like if you're going to rebuild your uh, release file, that may take quite a while, especially if you have like, you have to pip install some packages, like it may be like, you know, like a five minute process. Yeah. And I should say that uh, I don't install new libraries very often. So, you know, that sort of thing isn't something that generally gets involved. If I am doing extra libraries, like there might be a little bit of, you know, a little bit more time doing that stuff. Um, but Go generally builds really quickly. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people like it is that it's just such a quick language to, to build and do that sort of stuff. So as long as it doesn't have to go download stuff from anywhere, it's fine. Um, and generally speaking, DigitalOcean is pretty quick about grabbing that stuff anyway, so it doesn't take too long. Right. Yeah, that sounds amazing because I do work, work with Elixir every once in a while. And, you know, compiling code there takes quite a while at some point. Like, it, you know, you could be sitting there twiddling your thumbs for like, three minutes for a medium-sized code base, like something even smaller than your app. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess I've just gotten spoiled. I don't even really think about build times as much anymore. Like even in, um, like I said that I'm using Docker for my, you know, the new setup that I'm working on, it, it, it builds so quickly that it's almost instantaneous. And sometimes it's kind of, it's not, basically if you save a file mid-change, the error message pops up basically instantly on the React side. And I'm like, well, no kidding, it's breaking right now. I'm, I'm mid-work right now. Right. So going back to that deploy script, uh, we didn't touch base on this one yet, but how do you deal with managing secrets like API keys, email credentials, things like that? Um, I believe it's currently in a environment file sitting on the server and the app, whenever it starts up, it just reads the environment file and pulls all that stuff in. Um, and then I have a local version of the environment file sitting on my local machine and I'm just storing the stuff that I need there. Okay, so do you have like maybe two different ENV files, like an ENV local and an ENV. And then like the ENV one just gets like SCP'd over to your server with your prod settings. Um, so I actually don't SCP it over. I will actually go directly into the server and edit it with Emacs on the server if I need to change something. I, I've, I've done kind of both setups before. I 
what I don't want to do is to accidentally take my dev one and copy it over. And I also think just having the file name .env all the time is easier to write the code around. So that's just how I've done it. But I think long-term, like if I had a big team, maybe that wouldn't work so well. Uh, it just happens to work for me right now. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Like I'm on, I'm the same way too. I, I like just having the one env file, but I use that in dev. And then like, I just happen to use Ansible for, for configuration management. And it its responsibility is to create a .env file, but on the actual server. So it never conflicts with like the same file name as dev. Yeah. And like tools like Ansible, I'd love to spend more time with. It's just prioritizing what I'm learning. And um, I've also heard this this concept of like innovation tokens, which is essentially the idea that in every new project, you only get so many innovation tokens. You know, if you try to spend too many of them learning new technologies, your project is way more likely to fail because you're just doing too much new stuff. But if you, you know, pick and choose where you want to spend them, you can learn some new stuff or use some new technologies and be successful. But it's just, it's impossible to like, you know, just continue, you know, continuously spend them and then all of a sudden expect your application to be something you understand that you can manage and that you can actually be successful with. Yeah, I think that is a, a very, very cool and an important thing to live by. Uh, it's been mentioned once or twice now in a couple of episodes, but yeah, it's a great uh, thing to go by because it's too easy to get hung up into that, right? It's like you may want to, to decide to learn like a new technology just to build a project. And before you know it, it's like you're using every token possible and then it's like you can never get it done. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's especially hard for people who are new to programming because you get on the internet and you read about all these new technologies and you think that everybody's using all of them and that you have to use all of them. And in reality, even people who are up in production aren't using all of them. And if you try to learn every new technology and apply it to, you know, like as you build a app for the first time, you're almost guaranteed to fail. And that it's frustrating. And I feel like people quit programming because of things like this. When in reality, if they had learned probably the way you and I did, where it was a server and you uploaded a single PHP file, they'd have a lot more success and find it a lot more entertaining and you know enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't want to get too deep in the woods on this one, but like deploying to production back in 2003 for me was like literally just taking a PHP file, naming it like blog2.php, working on it in production. And when I was ready to ship it, I renamed the file just to like blog.php and like that was deploying to production. Yeah, you don't really hear about people deploying with like FTP servers anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely good times. Now, going back to your app here, uh, what does your like disaster recovery or unexpected event process look like? Like, I know you have that SQLite database. Do you just like copy that to a volume? Uh, what about like user uploaded files if they exist? So there's no user uploaded files. Um, and, and some of this stuff is because like I'm the only person making courses. So when I decided how I was going to actually you know, introduce course material, like for every video, there has to be a link for Vimeo to embed. There has to be you know, other metadata and other written stuff that goes along with this. And when I first looked at it, I started to write an admin panel where I was going to store all the stuff in the database and, you know, I was going to have this panel to do this all. And that's where I first actually considered React was I was like, all right, if I'm going to have this big admin page, it, it could be nice if it was, you know, real time. It would like if I added new sections and new courses, they just popped up instantly and it was a really nice flow. But as I thought about it, I was like, I really don't need any of this because it's just me. And if I need to add a new video, I can actually go edit a JSON file or like a Go source file and just add the new lesson hard-coded in there and just do a new release. Now, that doesn't scale at all, but in the short term, it allowed me to skip a pretty big problem and to get something out there. A side effect of that is that if the server does have some sort of fatal crash or whatever, 
all of the actual lessons and that sort of stuff is actually hard-coded in my source code. So, you know, you just spin the app up and go again and all that stuff's still there. And then, like I said, the SQLite database is mostly running things about users. So, you know, their, their accounts um, and anything else I might need to, you know, keep related to users. Interesting. So then you just have a JSON file, basically, or a YAML file, whatever, some config file that has the table of contents. And then, like, in, at the template level, you just loop over that? Um, yeah, so... It's it's basically, it's actually a go source file. Um, and this is really weird, but for whatever reason, I wrote it in two different formats for two different courses. So what I eventually did was I actually wrote um, on my like web server, I have like an interface. It says, as long as I get an interface that allows me to get the lessons and the, like, the section. So whenever I have a course, there's like sections, which are kind of like uh, chapters. And then there's like lessons inside of that chapter, which are like kind of like sub chapters. Yeah. Um, or like each individual video. And as long as that interface is satisfied, it can go query and get data. So long-term, if I decide to throw in a SQL database and store this all in a, in a database, I could just write a new implementation of that interface that uses the database. But for now, I just have two different implementations that read from pure Go source files and just return the data as they need it. Then the rest of my application runs as if it's, you know, as if it's working with the database or whatever else. It just, you know, it's only reading. Right. So how do you deal with things like, and maybe this doesn't apply, but like having attachments to a specific video lesson, like a zip file that you may upload that has source code? Um, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I have files, so I know I definitely have to deal with this. Like even every video, you can download them. Um, for the longest time, I've rsynced all of my files up to the server because it's just an easy way to get them there. I don't have to build any admin interfaces around it. And it'll check which files need updated and which files don't. So I keep a local copy of all the video files, like the final versions that I want to have on there. And then on the server side, I've it, every file or every lesson has the video download link, and it goes by just using a convention. So whatever the course name is or the course ID rather, um, it looks in a certain directory slash that course ID slash whatever um, the lesson ID is at that point. So it looks for that.mp4 or something like that. And if it finds it there, you know, it, it's like, okay, I can serve this file. Um, so that's kind of the way I'm doing like those videos. There are other attachments that I have that I will, again, just rsync up to the server, but then I'll actually hard code them into that. Whenever I said that I have that go source file that lists all the lessons and that sort of stuff, they're just, again, something I throw in there. Right. So like if it were a database, it's basically just like a column or a field for the file name of that attachment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially just, if you think about a JSON file where, like, you have an array, and it's an array of lessons, and each one's just a JSON blob, and that's essentially what it looks like. Every lesson just has a little JSON blob, and I can throw extra data in there if I need to. Like, some of the lessons will have additional links, so, like, if I'm using Gorilla Mux in one of the lessons, I want to link people out to that library so they don't have to go look for it themselves. So I've got... Um, one little section of metadata that's like external links that I want to provide them with. Another one's like files that they want to check out. And these are all just URLs. So I have to actually upload them, figure out what the URL is, and put it in there. So managing courses is, if I was changing these files a lot, would be a pain. But I've generally found they don't change that much, so it's really not that bad. Right, yeah. For listeners out there, like, it's typically, you create the course once, and that's like 99.9% .9 of it. Like you might be just be adding a lesson here or there for an update, maybe updating a video of a specific one, but yeah, not going in there very often. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that people should think about. Even um, like we talked about Tailwind and Adam uh, Wathen, who created the whole thing, 
I've seen him build a couple projects in YouTube videos he does, and it's funny how people sort of think that you need this admin interface to add data to the database and stuff like that, but I've seen several where he actually uses like PHP MyAdmin or something to go throw data in there, and he can build the rest of the application just assuming the data is there because that's actually a pretty good interface when you're just getting started. Yeah, for sure. You can definitely go down the rabbit hole of creating a super awesome admin. And before you know it, it's like you're spending the 80% doing that, 20% on the platform, when really it probably should be like 95% platform, like 5% admin stuff. Yeah. So you got to take your wins when you can get them, even if it means just like executing raw SQL somewhere. Hopefully in a file that you commit, maybe. <laughs> so going back to uh, disaster recovery, though, do you have anything set up on DigitalOcean to do things like send you email notifications if like the droplet CPU or memory gets a bit high over time? Uh, no, actually. Um, a lot of this is stuff I probably should look into more. Um, I've just kind of let it go is the best way to put it. The best thing I do is um, on DigitalOcean, you can just back up a droplet. So I'm ha I have backups generated, I think, daily, which is keeps me in a pretty good state so I can recover if I need to. And I don't remember exactly how many of those I keep, but it's, you know, it's enough that I've been pretty happy with it. As far as the actual server going down... Um, I use log DNA and all of my, so, so basically anything I print out in my application ends up getting, you know, or shipped over to log DNA and I can look at it there on their web admin. Go is kind of weird compared to other languages in the sense that like in, in like rails and other languages, when you have an error, it's usually thrown and you can kind of ignore it if you want, like you don't have to write code to handle it in go. Whenever you call a function, an error is just a return value on that function. So it like, it's usually the last return value unless somebody new to go is writing code, I guess. Um, so it's always going to be the last return value there. And in Go, if you actually like call a function and you assign like variables to all the different things coming back from that function, if you never look at that variable, it'll actually give you a build error. Like you, you basically have to use every variable. So that doesn't prevent you from always checking or doesn't force you to always check the error. But if you only call one function that returns an error and you assign it to a variable and you go to build, you'll quickly see an error message. So you, you quickly get into this habit of the very first thing you do after a function call is you say, if the error is not equal to nil, then you have a little block of code that handles it in some way. And I found that at first, this is annoying because it just feels like all of your code has this if error not, not equal to nil code that you're just constantly writing over and over and over again. But it gets you in this trained mindset of, I need to handle this error if it occurs, even if it's like almost impossible to happen. Like the only time this error happens is if the hard drive is completely destroyed but you still have to write the error handling code. And sometimes that error handling code is quite literally just, well, let's just print something out to the logger and then I can look at it later. So because of that, if anything goes wrong while my application's running, it almost always gets printed out to log DNA and I can quickly go you know, look at the logs and figure out what's going on. And as far as like actually tracking when things break, I've found that users are the easiest way to figure it out because people tell you when stuff's not working. Right, so within a couple of minutes, your Slack channel is gonna blow up? Um, maybe not that quickly. Uh, it kind of depends. Um, but yeah, people will basically just be like, Hey, this isn't working. And usually this is around releases. So like if I haven't done a release in a week, it's pretty safe to say it's probably not going to blow up and people aren't going to be bugging me. But if I'm shipping new features, then yeah, I need to keep an eye out for this sort of thing. Right. Now you mentioned log DNA, keeping track of like, you know, a way for you to look at your logs. Does it also deal with like error reporting too? Like something like what Sentry would do, or is it a bit different? It's it's just logs. So it works a couple different ways, but if I recall correctly, it's just something, um, it's just like a daemon running on my server that 
my logs that I'm, I just write logs like just to standard out and it actually gets all the logs and basically pipes them over to their service. And then it's, you know, it's all just on their service. So it's just taking anything that I print out to standard out and standard error, and it's putting it into like a web admin that I can search and I can look at more easily. Okay. But you have the ability from there to look at stack traces if you have to. Yeah. If I print out the stack trace or do something like that, I can look at it. Okay. And by the way, speaking of like things like, you know, log DNA, like external SaaS tools that you might be using, uh, which one do you use to send out emails, like specifically transactional ones? Mailgun for transactional. And then I'm in the process of moving from drip to convert kit for like mailing list. And there's, I do have some integration with that on my server side because that's the, my free courses are free with the exception that you have to join my mailing list as part of the signup process. Now you can immediately unsubscribe if you want, but that's just part of the signup process. Right. Yeah. I have not used convert kit firsthand, but aren't they very well known for being one of the first uh, email campaign providers that have the form of like tagging a, a customer? Like it's very easy to attach like metadata to a specific person on your list without having to like duplicate, duplicate your list a million times. From what I've seen, I think they do pretty good with that. I don't know if they were the first. I can't say that. Um, my reasoning for switching actually didn't revolve around that stuff at all. It was more around deliverability and customer support and other aspects along that line. Because when your mailing list starts to grow, you start to run into issues where if you happen to get thrown into like the same IP as a bad sender or something, a bunch of your emails can get you know, blacklisted. And then there's also, there's so many different spam filters that work in different ways that it's sometimes nice just to have somebody who focuses really heavily on that. And I just felt like Drip wasn't working for me as much anymore. Yeah, that's always a very, very scary thing. Like when it comes to your email list, it's pretty much your lifeblood if you're someone who is selling courses or any type of material like that. Yeah, and it's... It's frustrating when you integrate pretty heavily with the service and, and something's not working, but I mean, that's part of developing applications is that sometimes you have to switch. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, we've talked all about the tech, you know, Golang and SQLite and all sorts of other technologies, but oftentimes like, you know, for email, you know, that's something that you usually have to reach out to and use a third party for. So there, it's like a whole nother avenue of things you need to kind of know about. Yeah. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are for building and deploying this app? I, the first thing is definitely just to start as simple as possible. I think people talk about building an MVP and then they tend to build something way more complex than that. Um, and that was one of the big reasons why I built that uh, version of the course, like the whole course thing for the free version or the free courses was I wanted to write something that I was comfortable throwing away. So like, I knew if I was going to throw it away that it had to be as minimal as possible but I wanted to be able to experiment and learn from it and take what I learned and bring it back to like the, you know, the long-term app. And I think that's one of the big lessons is that to be willing to keep things really simple, to learn from that, and then like both in features you develop and in the technology you use. Because I think sometimes people are just too eager to try to pull in a bunch of complex technology. Right, innovation tokens. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, that is very, very good advice. So, John, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Uh, sure. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at John Calhoun. Um, and if you're interested in learning Go or you know learning about anything that I've been working on, you can just go to calhoun.io. That's my blog where I have all the stuff that I've written about Go. It's all free there. Um, but it also has links to other courses I have that are... You know, some of them are free, some of them are paid, but they're all worth checking out if you're interested in Go. Cool. 
And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.